The death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of five black police officers in Memphis underscores the hollowness of the blackness ethos born of the black power, black liberation era of the 60s and 70s. To think that five black police officers beat into murderous oblivion another black man, yet one hears or reads that their action was the result of white supremacy, it shows how resistance theory easily slides into propaganda. The Kernan Report, published roughly 50 years ago, cited the explosive, hostile relationship that the police and blacks had developed in northern and western cities, which led to the eruption of riotings in the 1960s. That neither police violence nor black homicides had been addressed in the last 50 years of the post-civil rights era is the essence of what this podcast is about, namely phantom politics. This is from Black Power to Black Trauma. I'm Norman Kelly. At the core of phantom politics is the reluctance or inability to address certain issues facing black Americans in the post-civil rights era. Phantom politics is the appearance of political action. It doesn't offer actual programs or political mobilization to contest for power. An aspect of phantom power is the HNIC syndrome in which charismatic leaders use the banner of blackness to appoint themselves as representatives of black people's interests, masking the reality of brokerage politics and self-interest. Another aspect of phantom politics is the demobilization of popular and democratic politics, which is evidenced by the lack of organization to contest for power. Instead, concepts such as cultural politics or resistance supplants mass mobilization. The production of theory by the black intelligentsia becomes a substitute for actual mobilization or building organization to contest for power. Ideas regarding critical race theory, white fragility, or intersectionality proliferate instead of actual organizing. In this episode, we will explore examples of phantom politics. From the late 1960s and 1970s onward, due to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, African Americans increasingly won local, municipal, and state and federal offices in the United States. The most important of these offices were at the federal level, the United States Congress. The legislative branch of government formulates public policy and controls allocation of funds and taxation. The formation of the Congressional Black Caucus could be seen as the establishment of a National Black Political Directory, which represented at the federal level the National Black community. To a certain degree, the call for Black power, interpreted in as many ways by Blacks as by Whites, had been answered by the rise of the new Black political establishment. Its assessment that it had acquired political power at the national level. However, this success also exposed the new black political elite's very weakness. Political science Robert C. Smith has argued that while the pro-civil rights consensus in Congress has won more than a dozen of civil rights or race-specific bills or amendments, quote, these victories are often to an extent irrelevant, symbolic as much as substance insofar as the life chances of blacks in the United States, end quote. 
Bills like the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act in 1978 aimed at chronic black unemployment wound up being passed as symbolic acts because they were watered down and had no real effect. This lack of effect became even more noticeable by the 1980s when a new marshal rode into town. Ronald Reagan and the conservative resurgence of the 1980s exposed a serious weakness of African-American politics in the post-civil rights era. It, unlike the 1950s and 1960s, had no outside countervailing force. African-American politics no longer had a movement. The movement had demobilized by going from protest to politics, but without building or institutionalizing a sustained political force. Recall that A. Philip Randolph pledged a missed opportunity to build and sustain an organization. This organizational weakness exposed, as Robert C. Smith noted in We Have No Leaders, African Americans in the post-civil rights era. Black political leaders unable to build a sustainable national organization to deal with the internal problems of the race and its relationship to American society have increasingly in the post-civil rights era resorted to ritual political posturing as a means to cover up or disguise their inability to lead, to develop a realistic program of action to deal with the problems of its core constituency of their inner city poor. Thus, the meaninglessness of conventions, conferences, sundry new organizations, caucuses, legislative recon, ad nauseum. Such meaningless rituals were merely a manifestation of phantom politics, which left blacks unprepared. When people don't have a movement or are not otherwise organized, that could mean winding up with a man or a horse or someone from the pulpit. With African-American politics being in a depressing state of affairs in which black elected officials failed to adequately respond to Reagan administration's anti-civil rights agenda, black politics resorted to the man from the pulpit, Jesse L. Jackson. This state of affairs regarding African-American leadership stems from the fact that it follows a broker-agent model. Usually, a charismatic black individual claims to represent the black community as a whole before institutional policymakers. The preeminent example of such is Jesse Jackson, a man who garnered black and white votes in 1984 and 1988 and traded them for positions that strengthened him as an interest group power broker, a position that rarely benefits the greatest number of blacks. We pause and give praise and honor to God for being good enough to allow us to be at this place at this time. When I look out at this convention, I see the face of America, red, yellow, brown, black, and white. We're all precious in God's sight, the real rainbow coalition. While Jackson may have initially engaged in progressive politics by going out to the heartland in the 1980s to promote a version of black and white unite and fight, he was primarily motivated, like all politicians, by the psychopathology of power. 
and arguably he had impeded the development of any progressive black movement for years. Despite his allegedly insurgent politics, it is interesting to know that while he did not seek to build any sort of countervailing insurgent organization, moderate conservative Democrats built one called the Democratic Leadership Council, which eventually led to the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. By the end of the 1988 campaign, Jackson became the undisputed leader of Black America, jumping over the heads of elected Black officials who were, in theory, accountable to their constituents. Jackson, however, with this influence, if not power, did nothing with it. He floated from being the District of Columbia's shadow senator to numerous other endeavors. Since Jackson represented a personalized brokerage type of leadership in which power is invested in the kingmaker, his rainbow coalition, while failing to become an independent progressive force in American politics, set the mode for the next installation of phantom politics. We're standing at the steps of the United States Capitol. Minister Louis Farrakhan, Nation of Islam, the Million Man March in Washington, D.C. I'm looking at the Washington Monument and beyond it to the Lincoln Memorial and beyond that to the left, to your right, the Jefferson Memorial. Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of these United States and he was the man who allegedly freed us. Abraham Lincoln saw in his day what President Clinton sees in this day. He saw the great divide between black and Since white. Sensing a vacuum in black political leadership from Jesse Jackson's last campaign in 1988 and seeing that nothing happened in regard to effective African-American policies, voter mobilization, policy agenda, etc., from then up to 1995, Louis Farrakhan was able to step into the breach. He learned his lesson well and understood the cardinal rule of all black politicians, elected and unelected. Neither the black public nor the black electorate will hold you accountable. In Louis Farrakhan's case, he has resided over a series of symbolic franchises, the Million Youth March, the Million Women March, in 2005, a Million Man Anniversary March was held to commemorate the one held in 1995, 20 years before. In other words, he has done nothing, and that is the point. Farrakhan was merely symptomatic of a political culture that had gone from protest to politics to institutional incorporation and has subsisted off of symbolic politics in the aftermath of the civil rights era for about 50 years, an era of phantom politics. This state of affairs is also the result of African-American leadership, political intelligentsia, activists not being interested in cultivating any sort of permanent grassroots mobilization. A case in point was the Black Radical Congress. BRIC was supposedly an answer to the following conditions and a need to offer radical opposition response. As noted by Sunita Kita Chajua, from 1970 to 1993, African Americans fell further behind in virtually every economic category. For instance, median black family income declined in relation to white median family income from a highest 60.7% in 1969-70 to 52.5% in 
in 92-93. Victor Perlow reported that the percentage of unemployed African Americans soared from 5.6% in 1970 to 11.7% in 1975 to 12.9% in 1993. Deteriorating economic conditions, judicial legislative repeal of civil rights laws, and increase in racial violence combined to make the period from 1975 to 1993 a new nadir. BRIC was supposedly different from previous black convention movements, which were based on an all-race concept of black unity, such as the National Black Political Convention in 1972. It was different because it was an endeavor that embraced black radicalism, which critiqued capitalism as a system that exploited class, race, and gender. It came to an existence in 1998, but was gone by the early aughts. Arguably, it left no significant impact on African-American politics and was supposedly about reconstructing the black freedom movement, but had turned out to be merely another example of phantom politics. One, I'm honored to address the delegates here. Reverend Al Sharpton, 2004 Democratic National Convention, Boston. Last Friday, I had the experience in Detroit of hearing President George Bush make a speech. And in the speech, he asked certain questions. I hope he's watching tonight. I would like to answer your questions, Mr. President. This was the prize for Al Sharpton to become the third head Negro in charge. This syndrome has witnessed the rise of symbolic leaders, Jesse Jackson, Louis Farrakhan, and now Sharpton, nationally known but are politically unaccountable to the very people they claim to represent, namely African Americans. Though Sharpton has claimed that he was following Jesse Jackson's footsteps, he also has in mind another itinerary, as noted by columnist Stanley Crouch. Sharpton almost assuredly wants the respect necessary to broker big deals and bring money into the base of his followers, the National Action Network, or to those who support him locally and nationally. In other words, he wants everything that Jesse Jackson has. If he can master what some call the diversity hustle, he might make it into the boardrooms from which much big dough flows. And such big dough came in the form of being the host of a cable TV news and opinion show, Politics Nation. Just as Jesse Jackson and Louis Farrakhan have jumped over the heads of elected black leaders who are politically accountable, Sharpton, who has no journalism experience, jumped over the heads of working black journalists to host a TV show. An African-American brokerage politics in which the personalized interest trumps those of the people, Sharpton made a deal. As reported by the New York Times, Mr. Sharpton, the president of the National Action Network, a civil rights organization, was one of the many activists and bold-faced names who agreed to support Comcast as it sought government approval for its takeover of NBC Universal. That Sharpton was sued for defamation in the infamous Tawana Brawley hoax in which one of the accused committed suicide was found to have been innocent didn't cause TV executives to think twice about enlisting Sharpton's good name. The performance of being a political leader without the bother of having a vision, plan, or organization to implement it, that's not important. 
but performing is. The tropes of blackness are more important than ideas, policy, and organization. As noted by Jerry G. Watts, who was speaking of Amiri Baraka, but could have had the likes of Sharpton, Jackson, and Farrakhan in mind. Unfortunately, black Americans seem to be too tolerant of irresponsible and unrepresentative political leaders, white and black. It is therefore not surprising that one of the dominant forms of black political leadership is autocracy. In many instances, the very concentration of power in the hands of a few individuals creates charisma around them that gives some blacks a vicarious sense of empowerment. Charismatic leadership, however, is inherently anti-democratic and is usually incapable of creating authentic mass empowerment. African Americans have paid a price for tolerating such irresponsible and unrepresentative leadership. Such behavior has led to a new generation of HNICs, pop culture celebrities who may have more influence than traditional or the older school of HNICs. African American celebrities, icons, influencers, the active ingredients of society's entertainment ecosystem and cultural apparatus are the most noticeable aspects of phantom politics insofar that some of them take positions on political public affairs issues, run for the presidency. In some cases, their mere action or presence are interpreted as political or as a constantation of power and are noted by the media and academic theorists. However, their positions or statements or actions mean very little in the totality of black collective power. Not understood as phantom power is the lack of African-American organizational implementation despite a rise in black wealth over the past 50 years of the post-civil rights era. Meaning, despite being relatively wealthier than 50 years or more during this actual civil rights era, blacks have failed to develop more and stronger institutions to press and defend their The new right, which began to rise and flourish just as the civil rights movement began to decline, established during the post-civil rights era conservative think tanks such as the Heritage Foundation, Manhattan Institute, Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Claremont Institute. However, African Americans have only established one noteworthy think tank, the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. Its budget, however, is often minuscule when compared to others, or take organizations such as the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society is a good example of how conservatives are interested in power, not theory. As mentioned in an earlier episode, the Federalist Society has placed six members of the society on the Supreme Court. It is that the 2013 Supreme Court decision, Shelby v. Holder, has negatively impacted the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which some have viewed as a less-than-stealth attack on black voting. The majority opinion was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, of course, of the Federalist Society. This takeover of the United States Supreme Court occurred with the help of dark money, a scheme that has been exposed by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Meanwhile, blacks are supposed to take solace with the appearance of a black woman on the Supreme Court because, after all, representation matters, which is merely the continuation of black faces in high places. But have these black faces really mounted to a significant change in the power dynamics? 
Nothing better shows the essence of phantom politics than the phantom nature of how specific social problems that disproportionately affect blacks are ignored by the black political class. A case in point is mass incarceration. The rise in mass incarceration began roughly at the same time when black elected officials began to rise in Congress. The rise in black elected officials occurred over the same two decades Michelle Alexander described in the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. In two short decades, she wrote, between 1980 and 2000, the number of people incarcerated in our nation's prisons and jails soared from roughly 300,000 to more than 2 million. By the end of 2007, more than 7 million Americans or one in every 31 adults were behind bars or on probation or on parole. This is the essence of phantom politics, a politics that has no power to protect supposedly or show concern for its core constituency, the urban poor and working class. In the 10th anniversary edition preface of her book, Alexander noted that back then, the Congressional Black Caucus, as well as most of the civil rights organizations, did not include criminal justice issues among its top priorities. Criminal justice reform, especially the concern of mass incarceration, just wasn't on the radar of the CBC or even black civil society. Wrote Alexander, in January 2009, for example, the Congressional Black Caucus sent a letter to hundreds of community and organization leaders who have worked with the caucus over the years, soliciting general information about them and requesting that they identify their priorities. More than 35 topics were listed as areas of potential special interest, including taxes, defense, immigration, agriculture, housing, banking, higher education, multimedia, transportation, and infrastructure women, seniors, nutrition, faith initiatives, civil rights, census, economic security, and emerging leaders. No mention was made of criminal justice. And 2009 was the year that Barack Obama became president. In 2010, the first year that the new Jim Crow was published, Alexander noted that there was not a broad-based movement to end mass incarceration. Subsequently, as an issue, it became sexy enough to be taken up as a personal cause by Kim Kardashian. However, Alexander was correct in her assessment that the concern over mass incarceration never sparked the advocacy effort that approached in scale the fight to preserve affirmative action. One does not need a doctorate in sociology or even be a Marxist to understand why the members of the Congressional Black Caucus or community and organization leaders or those concerned about firm in action weren't moved by the issue of mass incarceration. As members of the black middle class, it didn't affect them. Or put another way, affirmative action was worth fighting for since it affected deserving blacks. Prison or jail was reserved for those undeserving blacks. Middle-class blacks were no longer shackled by white racism, but they were also no longer shackled to those blacks who had held back the race. This was the most obvious evidence that the Talton 10th ethos that Du Bois had cultivated had ended years ago. But now, finding the new Jim Crow is the slogan of the CBC. It's its new mission on its website. 
The United States incarcerates 25% of the world's prisoners, even though it accounts for 5% of the world's population. The burden of this nation's prison industrial complex overwhelmingly falls on African-American communities. African-American men are incarcerated at more than six times the rate of white men, and African-American women are incarcerated at more than double the rate of white women. America spends $80 billion on incarceration every year, taxpayer money that would be better spent on preventing crimes in the first place by getting youth on the right track and keeping them on the right track. But finding the new Jim Crow as the CBC claims today, obscures the fact that it didn't do much, if anything at all, to fight the infrastructure of mass incarceration that was happening on its watch over two decades. One would think that, given supposedly black political consciousness, a sense of pride and mission, black elected officials would have recognized that the war on drugs, which began during the Nixon administration, but fully ramped up during the Reagan years, was nothing less than a political war on black people by another name and other means. This political war was so unrelenting that even Human Rights Watch was compelled to issue a report, Punishment and Prejudice, Racial Disparities in the War on Drugs. Human Rights Watch issued the report in 2000, yet Alexander noted that mass incarceration wasn't even the major topic of the Congressional Black Caucus until after the publication of the new Jim Crow in 2010. One should wonder what exactly is the purpose of a growing number of black political officials at the local, state, and federal levels if they cannot prevent two million men of color, black and brown, from being placed in state and federal penitentiaries, and millions of others being in some form of perennial probationary status. However, one should understand the intent of the war on drugs. It was a political war on black people. As former Nixon administration assistant to the president for domestic affairs and Watergate fellow John Ehrlichman revealed, the Nixon campaign of 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or blacks. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Recall the dire economic data that Chad Jewett cited and how the years from 1970 to 1993 represented a new nadir. This begs the question. If white supremacy is as systemic in the post-civil rights era as many claim, why were there no organized mobilization by African Americans to contest it as there had been in the 1950s and 1960s? Both police violence and mass incarceration would be prime examples of systemic racism, also known as white supremacy. Yet, for nearly 50 years or so, black leadership failed to mobilize African Americans. Why? Perhaps the answer lies not in seeing blacks as being traumatized, but being politically demobilized, stuck in phantom politics.
This has been From Black Power to Black Trauma. I'm Norman Kelly. Thank you for listening. Thank you.